My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. We are in week two of a four-week series called Jesus in an Insidious World. Um, and so John chapter one uh, identifies the four main insidious effects that this world has on us that Jesus came to undo. And here are the four categories. Number one is confusion. We dealt with that last week. Number two is death. Number three is darkness, and number four is intolerance. And we're going to laser beam focus this morning on spiritual death. And I'll say it on the front end, there, there is only one antidote to death and spiritual death, and it's Jesus, period. So if you want to know the main point of the message, you can walk out right now. That is it. There is no other source of life, spiritual life, physical life, eternal life. It is all only ever through Jesus. And in light of the power of Jesus to undo all of these things, it is not surprising to me that Satan has organized a global multi-millennium disinformation campaign that has one singular goal to keep every one of you as far away from Jesus as possible. This has been going on for millennia because here's what he understands. He, he is aware of the power of Jesus to use his words and create. He is aware of the power of Jesus to resurrect spiritually dead people to life. He is aware of the power of Jesus to take a Christian who is pushing him in a way and to resurrect them spiritually. He is aware of Jesus's power to take a literal dead person and make them come alive again. He knows it all too well. And so he's got one large agenda with you. If you are not a Christian, the amount of roadblocks he has put up in front of you culturally and personally to make sure you don't take Jesus seriously is off the chains. And if you are a believer in Christ, he would love to make you confused and busy and distracted and disappointed and angry, angry so that you don't run to Jesus. Because you know what happens when you run to Jesus? You plug into the source of life. And what does he want? Death. That's what he wants. Now, there are like really common tricks. So let's put on the front end of this message a few of them on the table for you. And forever, humanity has been duped. And some of us in this room have fallen into all of these. So here, here's a common trick in his disinformation campaign. Spiritual death is actually spiritual life. In fact, you don't even have to worry about eternal things because if he can convince you that there's nothing after this life, and if this is all there is, then indulge and do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. We live once because then we die and there's nothing more. The amount of people who truly believe that spiritual death is actually life is quite a few. And if you ask them, what is the ideal life? They're going to fill in the categories with things scripture says are actually created for your death. Here's the second one. Uh, spiritual life is boring and stupid. Or you might hear it this way. Christians are boring and stupid. And this is a, a great disinformation campaign because why would anybody ever want to engage a God that they have already been convinced is boring and stupid? It's actually a pretty great disinformation campaign, if you ask me. Here's the third one. Uh, spiritual life can be found by anybody if you're just spiritual. In fact, the less answers you have, the less clarity you have, um, the more virtuous you actually are and the more spiritual you actually are. And so here, here's the trick. As long as you're generally spiritual, 
particularly if you remain in a posture of searching and seeking but never finding truth, you are now noble spiritually, and that is spiritual life. All of these are a disinformation, part of a disinformation campaign to keep you and everyone you know as far away from Jesus. Uh, just as a brief introduction, here are three of multitude of scriptures in the book of John alone that referred to Jesus as life. John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. There we go. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he did die, yet shall he live. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. You want life? You want truth? You want to know the way to God? All of it, Jesus is the only access point for any of this. So I need you to hear me. Let me just pull back for a moment. Everything or every being offering you life apart from Jesus, it's a Trojan horse. Everything Every being offering you life that is disconnected in any way from Jesus, it's a Trojan horse. Do you guys know what phishing is, email phishing? Uh, it's an example of a digital Trojan horse. So here's what happens. Uh, a fraudulent email is sent to you typically with a subject that makes you feel like this inside. I've got to, got to, got to click. I don't know who it's from. I got to, got to, got to do it. I got to do it. I cannot see it. I got to do it. I got to click. And then it's designed. Some of them have a virus right when you click it. It infects your computer and your system, and then it fishes for personal data, exports that data to some nefarious third-party character, and monetizes you and sometimes just ruins your stuff. Every once in a while, though, it's a little trickier. The more sophisticated ones, you click on it, and there's an attachment. And you're like, I got to know. 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 And you can't resist and this is a Trojan horse. It tricks you. It makes you feel like everything's going to be fine. It's masquerading. It's offering you something that you might even feel like you want, but underneath it, what's there? It's actually there to steal from you. Did you know there are 3.4 billion phishing emails that go out every single day. And if you get one that says, I am in Africa somewhere and I need you to send me money, I want you to hear me, it's not true. It's not true at all. You just know it's false. And if they sign it, most reverend and holy Michael, not true. It's not, it's not true. I know, right? <laughs> Some of you have given me a lot of money and I haven't seen a dime of it, so... <laughs> The evil one has orchestrated all of this for one reason. It is to keep you away from Jesus. So this morning, John chapter 1, verse 4, I'll have it on the screen. Uh, and then what I want to do is I want to answer three questions about life that I think will help us understand what this text means. So John chapter 1, verse 4, very simple, very short. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of of men. Let me summarize it again. Jesus is the only antidote to death, spiritual, physical, or otherwise, period. There is nothing else. Everything else that offers to remedy death, sadness, etc., is a Trojan horse designed 
It is designed to slowly, subtly, insidiously corrupt you and not bring you life. We have to be clear about this. In the first three verses of John chapter one, Jesus was established as God. He was established as eternal. And he was, the, he was established as the creator. And now here's what we get. That Jesus is the origin and the source of all life, period. Platypuses, Jesus. Hammerhead sharks, Jesus. Slugs, Jesus. T-Rex, Jesus. You, Jesus. All created by the word of his power, out of the creativity of his mind. All life, Jesus, period. No questions asked. Well, you can ask, but the answer is always Jesus. So there we go. You might be tempted to think, by the way, that John is just talking about living people versus dead people. And so in the book of John, when you see life, it usually refers to not just physical life, but spiritual life. And this is something we need to uncover together what that is. So three big questions we're going to answer. Number one, what is spiritual death? Number two, what is spiritual life? And number three, what is the abundant life that Jesus offers? Because whatever that thing is, I wanna, I wanna figure that out, I want, I want that. All right, so typical Christian, we gotta go through the bad stuff to get to the good stuff. So let's start with what is spiritual death? Whatever it is, can we just agree we don't want it? It's really hard to define. I think it's a bit easier to explain. So I want to give you four descriptions of spiritual death. Number one, spiritual death is inherent. In other words, you are born with it. You inherited it from your mom and dad, and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Spiritual death is the spiritual condition that people are born into. One of the ways we know this is because kids intuitively know how to do spiritual death. We have to teach them spiritual life. We have to teach them good. We have to teach them how to rein in impulses. There is death inside of us from the moment we're born all the way until we're dead, unless or until Jesus intervenes. Romans 5, 14 says this, death reigned from Adam to Moses, and that continued on. Number two, spiritual death, it is aggressive. Romans 5, 12, Paul says this, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, death through sin, so death spread to all men. It almost feels like it's contagious, and it spreads amongst humanity. And when one person has it, they have the ability, hear me, to accelerate death in someone else. One of the most pinnacle examples in Scripture is Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is spiritual death to its fullest. But for me, the most disturbing part of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is not what the adults did. It's what the kids did. What's interesting about Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and honestly, there's no reason to even describe what happened in that city. You can go read it in Genesis. What was so disturbing is that young boys are participating in their evil, terrible debauchery with seemingly the applause and the support of their moms and their dads and their community. And, and what happens when a culture is so filled with death that they now voluntarily invite children into the culture of death to participate in it? And, and what you see here is that it's really aggressive. And if it is unrestrained, it has a life of its own. 
And what, what God has done is he has put a few factors into this world that restrain the aggressive pace of death, one of which is the family. And so mom and dads, you are the front lines for making your kids, releasing them on the world so they can be a living terror to the rest of us, right? So please, for the love of God, discipline your kids and restrain death in them so they don't inflict it on the rest of us, amen? Number two is government. God created the government. It is good leaders to restrain evil, to restrain chaos and insanity. Number three, he's given us the conscience, which is an internal voice of God, if you will, the image of God still in us, reminding us what is true and good and right. And, and it can be seared and it can be severed and it can be quenched and almost drowned to the point where it's unrecognizable after you push it down long enough. Finally, the world, he's given the people of God and the church that we are a voice of truth and love and light and life. And so thankfully, we don't see death reigning across the world as quickly as it would if it weren't for these four things. Number three, spiritual death, it's really easy. Here's what Paul says in Romans 7, 11. He says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me and through it killed me. Now, he, here's the irony. It didn't have to try very hard to deceive him because what does the flesh want? It wants to do spiritually dead things. It's natural. It's easy. It is always going to be so much easier for you to sin than it is for you to do godly things unless you have practiced righteousness. And so for most of humanity, doing the right thing is hard. Doing the wrong thing is easy. And some of you, I don't do the wrong thing. Well, good for you. Spiritual darkness is raining deep down inside of you just to the point where nobody can see it. No offense. Spiritual death is number four, terminal. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And what's interesting, again, just as life is not just simply about living or dead, the wages of sin is, yes, literal death, but it is also spiritual death, and inevitably, it is eternal death. And this is why spiritual death is so ugly, because it is insidious. It gets deep into the bones and souls of our body, and it corrupts us thoroughly. What's interesting is when we studied hell last fall, one of the things that we saw is that hell is not a place where people go to and they are sorry, where they are remorseful, where they have regret. In fact, Jesus describes people in hell as this. They are gnashing their teeth. And gnashing your teeth is what you do when you are filled with rage and you want to kill somebody. And so that in hell, they don't beg Jesus for new life. What they do is they rage against him because in hell, it's not like they're given life. They're actually perpetually, eternally given over to spiritual death. Can we talk about better things, by the way? Yeah. Let's talk about spiritual life. What is spiritual life? Again, like spiritual death, it's, it's probably a little bit easier to describe it than it is to define it. So spiritual life is number one, imposed. And it is imposed upon you when you trust in Christ. So when you personally trust in Christ, you are now set on a new trajectory. Uh, you are set on a trajectory from death to life. And this trajectory is going to continue to grow until you die, until you get to the new earth with a resurrected body. And this is the very nature of life. It is birthed in you. It is imposed upon you. No human being has the ability to resurrect their body or their soul. Amen? Nobody. And this is why you need to go to Jesus to get spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection. 
And Jesus has made it very clear. I only give spiritual life here and in eternity to those who confess their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as their God risen from the dead and coming back. That's it. There is no other way to get Jesus to activate spiritual life in you. Uh, Many people think it's by being good and accruing a bunch of good works. and, And maybe if I go to church enough, he'll be proud of me. And then maybe he'll resurrect me at the end. And it's not the game. Jesus is crystal clear. Anybody who trusts in him for eternal life, he will resurrect them spiritually and he will give them his spirit. And when the time comes, he will resurrect them physically. John 6, 63, I love this. It is the spirit who gives life. This is one of my favorite lines. The flesh is no help at all. (laughs) Good luck. Spiritual life is number two, progressive. All of life, physical, spiritual, it begins small. And it grows when it's nurtured. You can stunt the growth. You can postpone the growth. But its desire is to grow. It's to progress. Number three, spiritual life is challenging. Maybe you're newer to Christ. Maybe you came to Christ a while ago and you have been a little bit disenchanted by the reality of trying to follow Jesus. If anybody ever tells you that following Jesus is easy, they're a liar, right? Let me, can we get vulnerable for a moment? I'm a sinner and this body of flesh wants to do pretty bad things. I get angry, I get frustrated. I, I mean, you name it, like, I get jealous. I mean, all the weird things that you want to do that you don't tell anybody about, we're all human. We all have this. But you know what my spirit wants? My spirit wants Jesus and life, and I'm at war with myself all the time. Anyone else at war with themselves? And it is weird, and it is ugly, and like, we're going to test the limits of our vulnerability here, but like, like, I'll look out, and I just see stupid people everywhere, and I'm like, what is happening in this world? And I want to rebuke them. I want to send them emails. I want to do a lot of things. That is like, There is the body of flesh and the spirit in me. And Jesus is like, that probably won't do you any good, by the way. I'm like, I know, but my flesh wants it. Some of you are like, I want to write you an email. That's great, right? Let's just. (laughs) But this is real and this is challenging and it is not easy. I don't like waking up in the morning. I don't like disciplining myself in the morning. I don't like focusing in the morning. I want to hit snooze. I want to sleep till noon. I can still do that. I want to, like, that's what I want. I want to eat whatever I want. I want, to, I want that life. And my spirit's like, that's not actually good. That is all death. That will just corrupt you. That will affect your body. That will affect your soul. How about the way of life? It is really hard. But show me one thing that you're proud of in your life that was easy. The greatest things in life, they're a fight and they're worth it. You have a great marriage? That was not easy. You have a home that looks normal? That was not easy. You're shredded? (laughs) Well, some of you, that's easy, and we all hate you. (laughs) Jesus says in John 15, 5, and the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. I love this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But we can live apart from Christ temporarily. We can, like, push him aside Shut the door. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to go do the flesh thing. But if you want life, it hinges on you being connected to Jesus. Finally, number four, spiritual life is eternal. That once Jesus imposes it on you, there is nothing you can do to undo it. 
And it culminates to the point you're dead or Jesus comes back. And when you are resurrected on the new earth, you will experience eternal life, abundant life to the fullest. And everyone around you will be rid of this body of sin so that our body and our spirit want the same thing, which is life. And now in the eternal life, in the resurrection life, where there is literally life overflowing, it will be easy and it will be a delight. And in fact, you will not even have the desire for darkness or death anymore, which is why we celebrate Easter. We can barely begin to get our heads around the resurrection of Jesus, let alone the implications of having and living in this world where our body and our spirit agree with God forever without conflict. Give me that day. Now to question number three, this is, this is the one that I really wanted to get to, and uh, Pastor Craig and Pastor Alex and I, we've been preparing this all week and swapping notes, and, and we really actually had the most enjoyable time digging deeper here, but also it is one of the most challenging things to explain. What is the abundant life? And all I know is I want it, and I want all of it. John 10.10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Here's what abundant means. Exceedingly, very highly, beyond measure, more, I love this, superfluous, more than what one would expect or anticipate. So let's play a game together. I'm gonna ask you a rhetorical question. To be clear, a rhetorical question is a question that you don't answer out loud. Again, every time we do this, someone's like, I have an answer, don't do it, okay? Trust me. I'm gonna ask you a question, and I want you to think of the answer in your head, but what I don't want you to do is think about the answer you know that I want you to say, or the answer that you know God wants you to give. I want you to just kind of give the first answer that comes to your mind. Ready? Fill in the blank. Abundant life is. It's rhetorical, don't say it. Abundant life is. Fill in the blank. You have it? What makes this topic so challenging is that probably the majority of you filled in the blank with your idol. Safety, pleasure, power, stuff. Here's what I put. The abundant life for Michael Fueling is always fun. Fun, 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 fun. That's the abundant life. No pain, no sorrow, no sadness, fun all the time. I don't really feel like that's what Jesus meant <laughs> when he said the abundant life, but what happens when my life's not fun? Jesus, I thought you said it would be better than this. And he's like, well, I never promised you fun all the time. You're in a world of death. What makes you think this is gonna be a blast 24-7? Whatever abundant life is, it has to make sense for someone who just lost their spouse. It has to be able to be functional in that moment. It has to make sense for somebody who lost a child. 
If abundant life is never grieving or crying or weeping, Jesus didn't live the abundant life. Last time I checked, he was life and everything he did was life and he lived the abundant life and everyone connected to him got the overflow of his life. And Jesus wept and Jesus grieved and Jesus experienced anxiety and pain in his earthly body. So whatever abundant life is, it has to make sense for somebody who just lost one of their best friends or somebody who lost their dream. You had all these aspirations and vision and ambition, and now because of circumstances, it's gone and probably forever if we're being honest. So, so whatever you put in the blank, can it transcend these things? Can it exist in the face of the worst that life has to bring you? Here's the, the best thing that I can describe abundant life, and I, and I think if I make it too specific, maybe you won't be able to apply it as well. Abundant life is the experience of being connected to Jesus on a daily basis. And days bring high highs and low lows and everything in between. But whatever abundance means in the middle of weeping, you won't get it unless you are connected to Jesus in those moments. And whatever abundance means when you are given unbelievable gifts and joy, whatever it means, you're not going to get it unless you are connected to Jesus. And let me be so cliche for a moment. There are two things that almost every evangelical sermon is going to focus on. Number one, trust in Jesus Christ. We want you to know him. Why? Because we believe to the core of our being, nothing of what God wants you to do after this moment is going to be energized by him, unless you are plugged into Jesus through faith in Christ. First, it starts off by being a Christian. And then here's the second one. What are the two so what's that you hear in almost every sermon? You got to read the Bible and you got to pray, right? So if you're a new preacher, by the way, you always end your so what's. It's like so easy. Just tell them to read their Bible and pray. Why, why are we drawn to that? Let me, let me just tell you something. To be connected to Jesus is to be connected to his words, which are life. The spirit of Christ in us and the written word of God are made to collaborate and corroborate against each other. They are powerful when they are in tandem. And the word of God is life to the believer with the spirit of Christ in them. And one of the ways we stay connected to Jesus is through his word. And the other way is we talk to him. I don't know about you, but being connected to somebody you don't speak with, how's that going for you? It's a cold war. And we're not created to live in a cold war with Jesus. We are created to be in communion with him, with our words and our thoughts, and to be filled by him from his word as his word that we read and study and the spirit of Christ inside of us work together to create life in us. This is how primarily we are fed by connecting with Jesus. And so the abundant life is the experience of being truly connected to Jesus on a daily basis. What is that going to look like for you? I'm not even going to script it. Because every one of you is so different. But here's what you know. You can go through a lot when you are connected to Christ. You can endure a lot. And you will shock yourself at the grief you are able to bear And I don't mean without tears, and I don't mean without wailing, and I don't mean without all the other stuff that comes with grief. You will be amazed at what would crush you to the point of nothingness if it weren't for Jesus. You will be amazed at what abundance can actually look like. And this is his wonderful gift to you is 
abide in me, live with me, and I will, from the abundance of my life, it will just overflow into you. I want to share with you a couple so what's. Number one, I want to encourage you to obsessively get to know Jesus. If you want to see what spiritual life looks like, look no further than the author of life, the source of life, Jesus himself. The picture of Jesus, it's so full that there's so much life in him that it it, kind of just overflows. And John, who wrote this, had this unbelievable privilege that none of us have had. John got to walk with Jesus for three years. He got to see him do incredible things, listen to him teach, and, and he gets closer to the end of the book, and he says, listen, if I, were to, if I were to tell you everything, if I were to write all the things down that Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't fill it up, because it was like one story after another, probably even compiling them just to put together this gospel for you was challenging. Well, do I leave that one out? How do I not tell that story? How do I not tell that story? Well, I guess that was already in Mark's gospel. Luke got that one. Matthew got that one. All right, I can leave that out. How about this one? Can you imagine the stories left on the cutting room floor that you and I won't know until we die and we get to heaven? And and there's something about Jesus and his life, being in his presence, it was so full that even towards the end of his life, like if you were to look at John and say, would you rather be alive or dead? John would be like, give me death any day. Because never was I more alive than when I was in the presence of Jesus. Paul has this ability to experience Jesus, and here's what he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You can do whatever you want with my body, I don't care. Oh, you want to kill me? That's fine. I'm just going to go be in the presence of life. Where my soul was most satisfied was when I was with him. So here's what would happen to spiritually dead people when they would meet Jesus. One of two things. Number one, spiritually dead people would hate him, and they would find this compulsory need to quench and stifle Jesus as much as they could, even many to end up killing him. This is what happens when spiritual death reigns, and there is no even desire for repentance in you or life. And so Jesus would meet the Pharisees, and they were filled with spiritual death. I mean, they looked nice on the outside, but inside it was rotting. They were ugly. And they saw him and they were like, nope, can't handle it, hate it, because what does death hate? Death hates life. What do lazy people hate? Work. <laughs> and it, it's kind of your nature, it's just in you, it's just that's what's the, oh, I can't stand it. So they sought to kill him and they thought they got him. He literally willingly gave himself over. If Jesus, the creator of the world, didn't want to be killed, he wouldn't have been killed. But then there are those who are spiritually dead inside. And they had the opportunity to meet Jesus. And their response, it's like the first time they had ever seen life, and it was what their soul longed for. And so here's what you find. There's a really weird thing about Jesus. He eats with really immoral people. And and they don't make him immoral. In fact, when they're around Jesus, they seem to be kind of coming alive. And they're just enamored with him. He's so compelling to them. And they're like, what is it about you? Oh, I'm the source of life. I created you. I thought about you. I designed you in my brain before you were even born. Ha ha, that could be it. But they're around him and they look in his eyes and they're like, life is possible. Love is possible. Forgiveness is possible. When people encountered Jesus, they were struck. You you were not left the same. 
Let me, let me try and summarize in today's language what I think made Jesus so compelling. I've thought about this for quite a while, and, and here's the best I got. There, there are just six attributes of Jesus that if you met him, I think would just leave you, when you put them all together, would leave you really compelled. And, and I call this Jesus' default posture. Like when you just meet him walking along the road, he's not in a high high or a low low, just kind of doing his normal thing, which I think was most of his life. Here's what you would find. Number one, optimism about the future. So as Jesus thought about the future, he wasn't wrecked over it. Now, again, perka being omniscient, perka being God, right? But there were some privileges of deity he laid aside, and it seems that this might have been one of them. But here, here's, he didn't look to the future with this overwhelming anxiety about all the what-ifs. Now, every one of us in this room, we've struggled with anxiety, some more than others. People who struggle with it deeply would never wish it upon other people. But last time I checked, anxiety is not one of those things where you're like, ah, they're super anxious. I want to be around them all the time. Feed me with your anxiety. In fact, let it spill over to me, right? There is something about somebody who looks to the what-ifs of the future and just says, God's got this. But number two, there's a second attribute, and these all start to feed off each other. Uh, Number two is confidence in God. Like, no matter what happened, Jesus knew this. My, My dad's got it. If you knew my dad like I knew my dad, he has got this completely under control. It didn't matter how crazy it was. Kind of just this level like everything's going to be okay. And so far, what I kind of just described is to me, Matt Souls. Matt Souls has the gift of faith. You know those people who are like, it's always going to work out. God's got under control. Everything's going to be fine. I'm like, oh, I've got questions. I would like answers to all my questions in a timely fashion. And people with the gift of faith are like, it's going to be great. And, and that's Matt. Every time something comes up, I'm always like, get worried about something, anything, please. It doesn't. <laughs> Optimism about the future. Confidence in God encouragement to others. Are you a curmudgeon? Don't answer out loud, by the way. Keep that in your. Are you a complainer? Have you ever been around somebody who's super negative and be like, I want to be around them more? They were really compelling. I want to be just like that one day, right? That, that's spiritual death. And yet, isn't it really fun to complain? And yet it doesn't breathe life inside of us. And there's something about Jesus when he meets people He has the ability out of the abundance of his own life to overflow into other people so that he's just giving life. And I have a hunch if you met Jesus and you had the opportunity to have a personal dialogue with him, he might even call something out. I just love that thing about you. I love when you do this over here. Uh, I want to encourage you. Keep doing that. Hey, that thing over there, don't do that. Do this instead because it really, really highlights what God is up to in your life. I love, by the way, thank you for that. That was really meaningful for me personally. You know the difference though, right? Between people who use their words for encouragement and building up and people who are soul vacuums. <laughs> don't be a soul vacuum. Here's number four. A light heart unfazed by others. Now, you got to imagine that somebody who's optimistic about the future has complete confidence in God and has so much life in them that it overflows in encouragement to others. You got to imagine that they're not walking around stressed everywhere, correct? And when I read about Jesus in, in the Gospels, he just seems to have a light heart. And even when the Pharisees, who hate him, they want him dead, they're like, ha, we're going to catch him. And he's like, psych, can't catch me because I'm smarter than you and I'm God. I'm just going to carry on with my day. It's just unfazed, wakes up early, 
prays, gets his head straight. Hey, guys, we're going to go over here. Oh, there's a big uh, storm. Everyone's going to die. I'm going to take a nap. No big deal. He seems so chilled out. And don't get me wrong. He can be intense. He can be up and down. But like, there is a default to him, which is light. He's not carrying on himself what the Father has already offered to take from him. Number, number five is, is words appropriately salted with truth and grace. He seems to have the right words for the right people. And before he speaks, there's an intentionality and a presence with him. If you need a little bit more truth than grace, he'll give it. He also understands that when your heart is tender and you've been through the ringer, that maybe like truth with a lot of grace is probably what's needed in that moment. His ability to meet really sinful people and have them leave saying, I like him. He loves me. He is good. He, there is something different about him. You start putting this all together, and then, and then finally, here's the last one. Clarity about his purpose. He just knew what he was here for. He was here to pay the price for the sins of humanity. Just totally focused. He, he understood why he existed. There's no identity crisis with Jesus. He's not insecure about anything. There is this calmness to him, this peace to him that honestly people interacted with and they were like, I like him. And so many people have a really weird, demented version of Jesus, but I think anything less than a default of really optimism about the future, confidence in God, overflowing with life and encouragement to others, a light heart unfazed by others, especially the ones that want to kill him, words appropriately salted with truth and grace, clarity about his purpose. All of these are the manifestations of the life that Jesus lived. And I gotta tell you, don't you kind of want to be like that? Like, don't, don't you want to kind of figure out how to have such rest and confidence in God? I'm telling you this, that, that's a hard fight. It's, it's a lifelong battle. You'll never get there perfectly, but you'll never get anywhere until you plug into the source. And so it's time to get to know Jesus and abide in him and to do it diligently. Now, here's the second, so what for you? Know the difference between the short game, the long game, and the eternal game. I want to tell you the story of two men who are not real, but their stories are told in men all over the world every day. One man lives in a huge house, drives amazing cars, eats at fancy restaurants, has a trophy wife. On the outside, he has it all. But at the age of 40, he loses everything. Why? He's overextended. His debt load was too great to pay off. His wife leaves him. 40 years old, destitute, devastated, alone. Another man. Another man lives frugally, marries a beautiful woman, drives a used car, rarely eats out, he saves, lives wisely, commits his life to being moral. He and his family go to church on Christmas and Easter. At 40, he has a net worth of millions of dollars. And he goes to... Um, his financial manager, and they begin to put money into a trust so that he can bless his community and bless his children. What do they have in common? They both die, and they both go to hell. They both got duped. One got duped by the short game. Live it up. This is all there is. Give yourself to it. And what is the short game always going to do? It'll make you feel good, and then it devastates you. But there's a more insidious trick, and the insidious trick is the long game. Be good. Be good your whole life. 
be good, save money, work hard, do all the right things, live the Judeo-Christian ethic, go to church on Christmas and Easter, and, and maybe if you're good enough, your good works are all the way, your bad works, and everything's going to be fine. They both got duped. They got duped by the insidious lie of the short game and the long game. And I want to contend with you, there is a better game to play, and this is the game we should start with. I hate even calling it a game, but it's the eternal game. Because here's what they both missed. Neither of them plugged into the life that is only found in Christ. And I, I want to just take this opportunity to ask you, have you personally plugged into the life that is only found in Jesus? Have you personally trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you made him your God and your savior? And I, I want to encourage you, one of, the, one of my favorite things about Jesus is he is not like abusive, terrible dads who make you work for their affection. He offers you free salvation and forgiveness, not by accruing good works, but by asking for it. So today, are you a sinner who needs forgiveness? Ask him, and he is willing to offer that to you. But it doesn't just end with forgiveness. He offers you spiritual life. And spiritual life, when it is imposed on you, it is progressive, and it grows, and it is eternal, and there is nothing you can do to undo it. It will become the most secure part of your life, and he offers this to you free, and so I want to give you the opportunity. Today, are you ready to personally trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you ready to be given spiritual life? I'm warning you, it's going to be hard. I'm warning you, it's going to be a fight, but it's going to be worth it. Jesus is offering you everything, and he's offering it to you for free. And so if you are here and you've never done that, maybe tell a friend, somebody you came with. If you're not ready to tell them, come talk to us. If you've got more questions, maybe you just need somebody to pray for you. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Whatever your next step is, we'd love to come alongside of you and help you take your next step. Now, believer in Jesus, Christian in this room, I want to look at you and say, everything you want, all of the life, abundant life, it is only ever found when you abide in Christ. So I don't know what your next step is, but I want, I want to challenge you. This world is trying to pull you as far away from connection and relationship to him as humanly possible. But I want to challenge you, what do you need to do to re-engage your Savior? What do you need to do to plug into the source who ultimately is your life? And in him is abundant life. And it's, it's more than just the fun life. It's more than just the easy life. It's more than just the pleasurable life or the powerful life. It is actually a life that gives God glory and that satisfies the deepest parts of your soul despite the death that this world throws at you. Uh, I wanna close, I wanna take a moment, I wanna pray for you that we would engage Jesus who is our life. Father, thank you for giving us forgiveness and life. All of it's in Jesus. And Jesus, I, again, am just so amazed that every one of us in this room watching or listening, you came up with us in your mind and created us individually. And you love us and you are offering to us reconciliation and forgiveness. And, and so we are just really grateful. For every one of us who've trusted in Christ, we are thankful because uh, the flesh, it was of no help at all. 
You are the only source of life. And we, we confess that we have bought into so many of the dumb lies of Satan's misinformation and disinformation campaign, but God, we wanna look to your word for truth and reality and life. And I pray, God, as we talk to you and engage you, would you continue just to feed our souls with life to the point of abundance so that we, like Jesus, can breathe life into those we interact with. May Village Church more and more be known as a source of light and life. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.